Welcome to the Harper's Magazine podcast. I'm Christopher Vea, editor of Harper's Magazine, filling in for digital director Violet Luca. In this week's episode, senior editor Elena Saavedra Buckley talks with Krithika Varagar about her piece in the August issue, Love in the Time of Sickle Cell Disease, a report from Lagos, Nigeria, about the social, ethical, and romantic implications of genetic testing in a country where nearly a quarter of the population is a silent carrier of one of the world's most prevalent recessive genetic disorders. At a time where genetic testing is increasingly common, Farragher's report is also a picture of a future that may belong to all of us. Hi, Krithika. It's so great to be talking with you today about your piece in Harper's uh, Love in the Time of Sickle Cell. So I'll just kind of sum up some of the broad context of this piece. Um, You in it are writing about people in Lagos, Nigeria, who are making big life-changing decisions based on or around dating, marriage, and parenting based on their sickle cell disease genotypes. And sickle cell disease is a group of heritable blood disorders. Uh, Sickle cell anemia is one of them, which some listeners might have heard of first. They create an abnormality in hemoglobin, which then turns healthy red blood cells into sickle-shaped crescents. And these can lead to blood clots that can cause painful crises, as well as more severe symptoms like strokes or blindness and death in some cases. And as you write in the piece, Nigeria um, is the sickle cell capital of the world, which is why you wanted to set it there. There are over 6 million cases of sickle cell disease. Um, But it's also not just those people who are dealing with the questions that you bring into the piece. There are also carriers of sickle cell who are a quarter of all Nigerians. And if two carriers have children, there's a 25% chance that their child will have sickle cell. And if a carrier and someone with the disease have a child, there's a 50% chance. Um, So because abortion is illegal in most cases and treatments like bone marrow transplants are out of the picture for a lot of Nigerians, um, a lot of the decisions people make about whether how they want to deal with these chances start, as you put it, further upstream when people are dating, sometimes even before people go on a first date. And your piece dives into these tricky questions, especially when kind of inconvenient love comes into the picture. And I wondered if you could summarize for us your two central people, Nakechi and Sibomi, and how they had to deal with with those problems. Yeah, I can do that. And so great to be here. And it was so great to work with you on this piece um, over um, a very long period of time, which is, yes. which is a huge luxury, um, of course. And one thing I just want to say about the story before I talk about Nkechi is that it started out kind of unusually for me as a journalist, um, not as a specific story about certain people, but actually as just like a phenomenon that I noticed when I first went to Nigeria um, four years ago as part of reporting my first book. And it was not at all about sickle cell or public health or really anything like that. It was just kind of an aside that one of my friends in Northern Nigeria made that his sister had broken up with her fiance because they were both carriers of the sickle cell gene. And I thought this was a kind of a crazy state of affairs. And I thought it was crazy that I had never heard of this happening, especially because sickle cell is so prevalent in Nigeria, which is the fifth largest country in the world, or definitely the most populous country in Africa. 
And I kind of had a side quest on my first couple of trips there where I would ask Nigerians if they had an experience with this genotype kind of thing. And one after another, they would all say, yeah, of course, Um, this came up with someone I was dating. This came up with my wife. This came up with my children, with my friend. And realizing how widespread it was and just the nature of the trade-offs people were making, which is both really recognizable to us because we live in the age of genetic testing, but also just a little bit different because the place these decisions happen are are different and interestingly so, which is um, at the level of adult relationships and love and romance. So this really just, um, I just became obsessed with this topic and these dilemmas. Um, And so I pitched this story to you and to Harper's um, before I found the subjects of it. And I was confident that I would find people who would make this dilemma come to life. But it started with noticing this state of affairs, which I thought touched on the most important things about love and uh, what makes a good life and, and how we relate to each other, but was also kind of just a widespread phenomenon grounded in modern science and medicine. So um, I interviewed dozens of people uh, when I got to Nigeria and before I got to Nigeria, um, both carriers and people who had sickle cell disease and uh, specifically told them that I was interested in hearing their stories as it related to um, dating and marriage. Um, And uh, I went to Lagos because it was it is the biggest city in Nigeria and home to kind of dentist concentration of people on the dating and marriage markets. And I was hoping kind of with blind faith that someone, someone's story would jump out at me as really exploding some of these dilemmas in the page. Um, and maybe like a couple dozen people in, I finally heard of and then met Nkechi, um, whose story is so compelling and so dramatic that it's really the backbone of this piece. And she is a single mother um, now uh, from originally from Igbo land, but grew up in Lagos, kind of a modern middle-class, uh, well-educated eldest daughter from a family of six. Um, and she met Shubomi, um, the love of her life um, in the national youth service year that people do. Many people do right after college in Nigeria. It's kind of a nation building scheme. And she was basically randomly assigned to this town in the Southwest, which is, um, they tend to assign people from the East to the West and vice versa. And he was assigned to his hometown because he didn't want to travel far for personal reasons. And they fell in love basically within um, days of meeting at the news station where they were stationed, uh, where they had their work placements. And um, he had sickle cell disease, so his genotype was SS, and it was pretty obvious to people around him, including Nkechi. And Nkechi herself was a carrier, which means that her genotype was AS, and she herself, as we say in the piece, had had, had some cousins die from sickle cell, um, so she was aware of how serious it was. But, you know, as these things go, you don't always choose who you fall in love with or when, and before they knew it, they were a couple and they went on to date for several years, basically for six more years. And even though their initial work placement was just a year and Kechi was like, we need to break this off and try to move back to Lagos alone. He followed her there. So he was a very ardent lover. And, you know, she wasn't a passive subject of this either. She was in love with him too. And every time they would try to look for other partners, no one really got them the same way. 
which I think is pretty self-evident. It's not so easy to um, fall in love or find someone who gets you or as Nikichi described to me is your person. Um, so despite several attempts to break, break up, they stayed together for about six years. They finally tried to break up for real before um, their 30th birthday. And the very next day, Shibomi got into a horrible car crash and then a coma. So um, talk about an act of God. Uh, Nikichi spent the next month by his bedside, um, nursing back to health, forgot all about the breakup. And long story short, by the next year, they were married. Um, and, you know, the, I feel like I, it was hard to predict what exactly the story would be like, but I am a romantic and I don't think I would have written this story about people who didn't choose, um, love in these tough circumstances. Right. I think the easy story to write would have been about people breaking up and it does right. need to be more common. Um, but the story stood out for as exceptional in many ways, including how much, um, these people, loved each other and chose to put everything on the line for that. Right. Absolutely. What I love about, as you said, you and I kind of spoke about a lot of potential candidates to write about for this piece. And there are other people that you write about who have slightly different situations from Nikechi and Subomi. But what I love about their story, along with it being one of these, along with them being of this kind of certain echelon of Nigerians who are upper middle class, educated, and therefore under special pressure from family and friends to, you know, think through these decisions and make make a decision that will come to, you know, lead to the best outcome, presumably one that does not have a child with sickle cell. Um, Nikechi and Shibomi obviously make a different choice. And I also love that they their story was not one where they had a really rigid sense of exactly what they wanted their life to look like, and it was just sidelined by their genotypes um, in kind of a simple, dramatic way. You know, like so many of us, they are building their life step by step and making new decisions as they finally decide to not break up, finally decide to get married, think they're not going to have a kid, and then and then come into a new chapter of their life where they want one. And I think that kind of illustrates, you know, the unpredictability of love and what kinds of choices you make as you get older, but also the way that even if, even if these genotypes are something that people are thinking about in Nigeria from a young age, you can, you can still decide to kind of roll the dice as you put it in the piece. I think too, I wondered what drew you especially to, a story in a you know middle income developing country like Nigeria I think American readers when we read about genetic ethics we're often you know we're reading about CRISPR we're reading about gene editing and these kind of sci-fi sounding uh, advanced technologies but this story has people making these decisions you know thinking about these decisions more than Americans often do because they have to think about it from a way earlier age um, and I guess I wonder when you're when you were doing these interviews, especially when you were interviewing family members of some of your characters, what kind of tone were those conversations like? What what was it like to talk to people who had this information in the back of their minds their whole life? The great thing about this, working on this piece, was that it, it was such a matter-of-fact um, part of these people's lives, which which kind of reinforced my interest in writing about it because when it comes to such personal issues as this, I was not going to pressure anyone to share their life stories with me. And everyone who was part of the piece very much wanted to speak about these things, which was great. But I also think 
that it so happens that the situation is concentrated in Nigeria because of sickle cell trait and uh, sickle cell is basically one of the most common genetic diseases in the world happens to uh, be there. And it's an English speaking country that I have some experience working in. Um, but I think that the issues at hand were basically irresistible to me because they take place at the intersection of love and the limits of rational choice and kind of extreme states, which is something I think about a lot, especially as an American where our society is structured around the right to choose. It's kind of this um, the central part of our liberalism. I've been thinking a lot about the limits of you know rationality and choice as it relates to how to be a person in the world. So the fact that this state of affairs is so commonplace in Nigeria made it a totally irresistible subject for me. And now that the piece is out in the world, it's been described as science writing, which I belatedly realized is true. <laughs> it absolutely is that. And I, I and I read and you edited um, so many, you know, like PubMed papers to learn about the specifics of this disease and to make sure we really told the story of what was going on um, physiologically correctly. But uh, to me, it's, it's a story about adults making choices given the knowledge at hand. And something interesting philosophically to me is that in the virtue ethics tradition and in a lot of traditions, unlimited choice is not um, the one-way route to a good life. Um, it's kind of accepting constraints and making the best of what's available to you that in many accounts, is the way to be a person in the world. And I think the story is just an amazing way of thinking through some of those questions. There's just no right or wrong answers. And with regards to why I wouldn't write about CRISPR or prenatal testing in America or the West, I think a lot of people have done an amazing job with that. But I think the decision making involved is just a little bit less interesting to me than one that uh, intersects with affairs of the heart. Yes, absolutely. Um, I want to touch on some of those questions of rational choice and, you know, doing so in a so-called liberal society in a second. But before we get there, I wonder if to kind of go science writer mode, you could talk a little bit about, um, you know, so Shibomi, who has sickle cell, and Nikechi, spoiler, have a son in the piece whose name is Momo, who ends up having sickle cell himself. Could you talk a little bit about the differences in treatment and management and attitude in Nigeria towards sickle cell from when Shibomi was growing up to now for Momo's yeah, life? Totally. I mean, so um, Shibomi was about 36 when Momo was born. And the difference between his upbringing, again, in a, in a very educated upper middle class family to now is night and day. I mean, I think it's safe to say there's been basically a revolution in awareness and treatment of this disease. The 60s were when the earliest Nigerian doctors started to study sickle cell and, and kind of roll out testing. And Nikeshi was tested as a child in the early 80s. But we know so much more now about a good preventative regimen than we did 30 years ago. So a lot of the mortality rate from sickle cell, especially in West Africa, comes from infant mortality and under five mortality, is that's the most dangerous time for babies and children with this disease um, because they're extremely prone to infection. So Momo, when who was diagnosed when he was 10 months old, has been on antibiotics every day of his life um, so that he 
almost never gets an opportunistic infection that can be really fatal. He's been on anti-malarial drugs every day of his life since his diagnosis. Um, he takes folic acid and several other vitamins that are best practices every day. And his mom takes him in for um, CT scan because children with sickle cell are at higher risk for stroke. So these are all just gold standard care practices. And because Keji is such a hands-on mom, Momo has, you know, kind of sailed through the first five years of his life. He's had a couple of crises and they were scary, but basically he got pretty good care, um, during all of them. And, um, with every year of his life, his, um, immunity and ability to withstand these infections is going to get better. And beyond that, um, his father grew up not telling many people about his disease, even though it was kind of obvious to many people who knew him because there was such a huge social stigma associated with it. And in part because of Nikechi's kind of amazing and unique personality, she has been adamant since day one that she would never be embarrassed or ashamed of her son's condition. She's been extremely open about it. She tells all his teachers about his condition. He doesn't play like extreme sports in school. Everyone in his extended family knows about his condition. So everyone's looking out for each other. Um, so it takes a village to raise any child, but I mean, it's very obvious in Momo's case, I spent some time with her extended family and everyone treats everyone's children as their own. So he has a pretty good support network in that sense. Um, so I think because of all these things, and I think I put it this way in the piece, sickle cell is no longer a death sentence. People are living much longer lives with it. And, um, that fact also, the fact that that development is coterminous with these norms coalescing really makes this such a gray area. There's just no right or wrong answer about what. Right. Right. You, you know, the the word responsibility obviously comes to mind a lot when you're thinking about this piece and it's one that you use in specifically the phrase genetic responsibility, which is this concept coined by sociologists in the seventies who, you know, kind of predicted that as genetic testing spreads, individuals will be um, pushed to make more responsible decisions to prevent the spread and, and to prevent passing down diseases. You kind of, think about, you know, not only how does genetic responsibility come into play in an, on an individual scale, but on a communal one. Um, you give a few examples of smaller, more contained communities like the Jewish Orthodox community dealing with Tay-Sachs disease or um, on the island of Cyprus, beta thalassemia, um, diseases that were lowered dramatically once interventions were made by medical professionals and sort of social services. But you note in the piece how in those cases, um, the communities were fairly homogenous or small and dense um, or had fairly strict uh, rules about whether people could date and, and marry or how people should conduct themselves when it comes to passing on these conditions. Um, Nigeria, of course, is not like that. It's a giant, uh, multinational, heterogeneous democratic society. So the the idea of genetic responsibility becomes a lot grayer, too. Um, and I w wonder if you could talk a little bit about how how that came up in the piece and when you were comparing this case to any number of other um, 
instances of genetic responsibility in the world, kind of what were the what were the clashing ideas? I mean, the interesting thing about this piece, and I would talk about over the past year, is that people often had one or two um, reference points that are widely familiar now that they could reach for. Um, Tay-Sachs, as you mentioned, is a common one because it's a big part of uh, matchmaking in Orthodox communities now, and a lot of Jewish people have otherwise been screened for it whether they're carriers or not. And another common example is Down syndrome, um, which in many parts of the West is heavily screened for and in, in many countries um, leads to uh, leads women to abort fetuses with it. But um, it's it became clear to me in the, in the process of researching it that we're no longer going to have these easy to reach for examples because the scale of genetic testing is exploding so much. They're just going to be like so many diseases to test for. Um, another one that came up was BRCA, which has recently become kind of a well-known gene, the breast cancer gene. Mm-hmm. Um, but just like there are hundreds of genes you can get your carrier status test- tested for. And it's not going to be so easy as saying we should not risk passing Tay-Sachs on or we shouldn't risk passing sickle cell on. So I actually think that the situation in Nigeria mirrors the future more than the last 10, 20 years, because the lack of an obvious, like 100% clear-cut answer is is going to be the norm going forward, um, especially as genetic testing becomes part of like many um, middle-class pregnant women's lives here in America, which it already is. And you get almost uh, incomprehensible amount of information on what kind of things you and your partner have been carrying genes for. And there is no hard and fast rule in these situations. And a lot of these diseases, it's not a hundred percent chance you'll get them. So I think that complexity that's inherent to the Nigeria case, also because it's such a large country where statistics are notoriously hard to come by in a country that combines, at least in Lagos, especially like kind of the individualism and choice that's familiar to us with kind of stronger family ties that are uh, common in that part of the world. Um, I think that made for a really interesting situation. And so I tried to gloss over some of the range of possibilities for people in these situations in my piece, kind of uh, about a quarter of the way down. And I really did meet people who had taken every possible decision, including breaking up with their carrier, boyfriend or girlfriend, including realizing that they got the wrong genotype tests and they got a surprise child with sickle cell disease, people like Keshi and Shwoman who got married anyway, or people who had to get divorced because one of the parents could no longer deal with the reality of having children with sickle cell disease. There are just so many possibilities, and I really wanted to honor that range and to suggest implicitly like that's going to be closer to our future in the age of genetic testing than right. kind of clear-cut seemingly clear-cut answers around things like uh, uh, Tay-Sachs in the example I mentioned. Right, absolutely. I I totally agree that the situation in Nigeria and the way that it um, falls so far back into people's lives where they're going to, where they know that they're going to have to make these decisions from, you know, maybe when they're Nikechi was tested when she was seven, for example. This piece also made me think so much while we were working on it about all different kinds of responsibilities we might have as, you know, as people who are making any number of decisions, but especially as parents or potential parents. Um, I think, as you say, with so many possible conditions that we now have a little bit of information about, um, it becomes hard to kind of know where one's responsibility lies. In the case of sickle cell in Nigeria, you and I kind of spoke a lot about 
how making a decision to not have a child with sickle cell is one thing that you can do, or we can hope that the communities we live in might be more comfortable and open to a child with sickle cell and that the decisions we can make with that reality in mind are another set of responsibilities. Um, for me, it kind of, well, it, it made me think a lot about, you know, people in our demographic, you and me, women who, you know, might have children at some point, we're often asked about, oh, do you want to have a child in, you know, a world that's only going to get, you know, warmer and, and more un uninhabitable, all these things where, um, genetic responsibility kind of then reminds you perhaps of how little control you can have, even if you have all the information that reminds you of the control you want. Totally. And I think, um, you know, a really important contribution of the disability rights movement is that the point of what we are doing as a society is not to eliminate all diseases, which is not possible. Right. And, they, and, and many would argue not even desirable, um, but to create a world that is what much more humane to people with um, all kinds of diseases, um, and I think um, I think that's where this piece kind of gets to because the desire for control in any one specific domain and people all have their emotional ties to certain. I know many people who are, who are very concerned about passing on the BRCA gene, for example, and and if you've had personal experience with that, the emotional pull of that is really obvious. But you can control for one or two or three variables. There was no way you can control for all of them. Um, and I think the point I'm trying to make, although this is not at all a polemical piece, is that we should try to extend more grace to everyone um, mm -hmm. and genetic responsibility like the worst case scenario that it can go to very quickly in America is to blame people who have children with genetic diseases. Right. Um, and you can easily see where that would go just based on how, you know, the vaccine rhetoric was over the past few years about choosing to, you know, choosing the right thing for your health and other people's health. Right. So I think that the better possibility that I'm gesturing to or hoping to shed light on in this piece is that we can be more accommodating of children and families of all kinds and that genetic responsibility doesn't turn into like genetic blame game. Right. Absolutely. It, you know, the, you, I think used this phrase already as we've been talking, but the elusive notion of the good life, uh, is really thrown into question in a piece like this. Um, I love the way you end the piece. I, I suppose it is also helpful for the listener to to know that um, in the story of Nakechi and Shibomi, they have Momo who ends up having sickle cell. And a little bit later into Momo's life, Shibomi ends up having this ulcer that uh, progresses and eventually leads to his death, which is what leads to Nakechi being a single mom now when you met her. Um, and I think you do an amazing job on the page showing all of these you know tragic predicaments and then tragic events but also how much light and joy momo brings into nikechi's life but everyone around him you know you you show him like streaking through a family event and kind of uh being this light in their lives even though a lot of people um in her family and friends discouraged her from having children with someone with sickle cell um and you know the concept of flourishing takes on a lot of different shades even if a disability might to 
some kind of uncharitable people be something that prevents flourishing? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think the good life in the way that I think about it and wanted to explore in this piece is is about the ability to exercise your unique capabilities in your environment. And by like the vast majority of, of metrics, Momo is in a position to do exactly that. Right. And, and I think something important about this story as I've gotten some really early feedback, which of course has some incredibly sad moments. And I myself, I should say, cried the first time I heard this story from Nikeshi, cried dozens right. more times um, spending time with her writing and editing the piece. I mean, it's very it's sad and it's literally questions of life and death, but it's it's also not a sad story in some ways because Nkechi is not, doesn't see herself as a victim at all. She just is, it's hard to describe her as any other than a ray of sunshine. She's like just really full of life. And Momo is also amazing. And the way she looks at it, she has absolutely no regrets about the choices that she made. She had about 15 years with the man she loved, which is more than many people get in in the whole world and longer than many marriages last period. And so she thinks she made the right decision. She wouldn't have done anything differently. And I think, you know, if if anyone's listening to this after reading the piece, I just think that's something important to remember, which is that she's a very unique person to have made these choices. Not everyone could have made them, but um, her story is not all all a tragic one. The choices that she has to make and that people in these situations make are tragic because they involve trade-offs. So I think right. situationally that's the case. But there's a there's a lot of great things in their lives as well. Right. I mean, and yeah, aren't we all making trade-offs of some kind, even if it maybe is not at the at the volume um, that Nikechi and Shibomi were doing uh, with with these decisions for sort of the real heads who might be listening, maybe we can talk a bit about how you and then I put this piece together. Um, maybe I'll start with kind of the bigger question, which is why you thought this had to be a magazine story. What about the form of a feature like this on the page did you think would do an especially good job illustrating all these gray areas that we've that we've been talking about? Yeah, I mean, as soon as I learned about the state of affairs, I immediately felt that it had to be a magazine story. At that point, I had not written a magazine story yet, and I knew I would have to build up to, um, you know, kind of like training for a marathon to put all the pieces together and make it happen. But, um, you know, as a journalist and a, a foreign correspondent, I'm so influenced by the kind of American long-form magazine tradition from both the new journalists and kind of more recent um, literary journalists um, who who use kind of um, novelistic techniques and storytelling to make light of things that are really happening. And I think that as soon as I learned about the state of affairs, I didn't want to write a 1500 or 2000 word news story being like, here's what's happening, because it's just so easy to tune that out. And I also thought that just telling people that this is something that's going on was absolutely not what I wanted to do. I wanted to impart the weight of the questions that I sensed beyond this phenomenon um, to people who knew, knew nothing about it. And the way to do that, I felt was through a kind of compelling real life story focused on on basically one person uh, following them very closely through their lives and I think the amazing thing about the 
classic kind of magazine story is that it allows you to do exactly that, which is tell a real human story um, with great detail and pacing and at certain length, but also fold in some bigger picture concepts and some of the things that we want in journalism, like explaining what this disease is and what the stakes are, um, and also opening it up to uh, bigger picture themes. And, you know, there's obviously so many ways that we can consume content today, like this could have been a podcast or documentary or a news story, like I said, um, or whatever. But I just thought none of those would even come close to the potential of um, a magazine piece in telling the story. And it's been great to work with you and, and, and Harper's especially, which has been such a home for this kind of journalism over like more than a century um, to really bring this vision to life. Right. I think, too, with a, a piece that's about you know, internal conflict and shifting decisions, um, turmoil, it's especially important to do the kind of narrative work that brings you inside the head of your central person, Nikechi in this case. Um, I think you and I talked even before you went to Nigeria about finding somebody that you could do that with. Um, Can you maybe just for a second talk about what it took to get the information that you needed to kind of speak from her voice. There are certain journalists, you know, Larissa McFarker comes to mind who kind of build their whole career around that type of narrative work. And it's tough. And it means you have to choose people who will trust you with that information. But you also have to kind of be really on the lookout for any kind of detail that can be used to conjure, you know, what she was thinking when she walked into the hospital when Shibomi was in a coma, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And in in preparing for this piece, I read um, some of these classic pieces by some of my favorite journalists, including Lois McFarker, um, also Catherine Boo, who's um, welfare journalism. It's been a huge influence on me um, in terms of its close attention to detail and just the intimate scale of the reporting. Um, And Rachel Aviv's also a modern master of this form and just so many others. Um, Maybe we can put them in the show notes. But the short answer is time. So I went to Nigeria three times. And the last time I actually went to Nkechi's village in Ibo land, which is called um, Mbaise. Um, And I... So I I was hoping to tell a story that had a power that was kind of obvious. Like, not that, I, even if I didn't do anything to Nikechi's story, if I just told you about it um, over dinner, I think it would have great power because it was just so, you know, it's one of those stranger than fiction stories, the, the way the way it unfolded and the mm-hmm. stakes that the universe imposed on her to prove her love for Tsubomi. I mean, just this is obviously a little bit um, annoying, but the way I thought of it was like an Aristotle's poetics. Like that's the whole task of writing Mm -hmm. is to find the story and the plot that is so good that anyone can tell it. And I do think Nikechi's story miraculously has that quality. But then in terms of bringing it to life on the page, I just spent a lot of time with her in her house um, from our very first meeting with her. She was very open, wanted to share her story. She had spoken out about sickle cell before. and she had a very expressive style. Um, she's a very um, kind of free and open talker. She was kind of um, open to me 
coming to church with her, meeting her family, like just spending a lot of time with her and Momo and me and Momo also, um, Momo who's, who turned sick shortly after I met him. Um, we got on like a house on fire. So that helped. And, right. um, and, and they were, and she and everyone who I met in her world were just really welcoming. And I think that was the key ingredient. And, and I kept going back, but they made it easy to just keep asking, um, just ask, just keep asking in kind of like a fractal way for just a little bit more detail on how this breakup unfolded or um, uh, what the what some of these pivotal moments in her life were like. So um, I guess I just got really lucky that I met such uh, wonderful people in Nigeria. Um, yeah, I think for a final question maybe it's more of a comment though, is I loved working with you on this, especially while you're ramping up to writing a history book. Um, I think that the kind of work you have to do to bring a character like Nikechi to life, who, you know, is around right now, who our fact checkers were calling and speaking to, um, is not dissimilar from, you know, finding a story in the past that has to be told and and not dissimilar from finding you know in archives or whatever other sources you're using um the kinds of details that can bring that to life um so it's been fun speaking to you about this project and then that one if you want to gloss over it you can um because while they are often shelved in slightly different parts of the bookstore they they require a lot of the same writerly skills yeah, I think in in both cases, what you want is to, first of all, yourself feel like you have a good account of the people you're writing about, and then to create that account in kind of a pointless way on the page. And it's, um, it's a real adventure every time. I mean, I really felt like working on this story, I was reminded of this Carl Sagan quote, just that if you want to make an apple pie from scratch first you have to invent the universe which is that you just I just um felt like every like putting this portrait together you had to start from the ground up and you don't know what details you're going to need until you're writing and then revising and spending hundreds of hours with someone but that um kind of scavenger hunt is really thrilling and along the way off obviously revisited and reread some of the most successful examples to me of people making um either real life subjects or people from the past um, seem real on the page, which I think hopefully is what we've done here. And getting a chance to work that out almost like a puzzle after you've done all that reporting and figuring out how to really make that work as a story has been a really enjoyable experience. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you also to the Pulitzer Center for making all of those trips to Nigeria possible for this piece. Um, And thank you, Krithka, for talking with me today. Um, I hope everyone listening reads her piece, Love in the Time of Sickle Cell Disease, in the August issue of Harper's. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, 
visit harpers.org slash save.